Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's episode, we are delighted to welcome back Jacob Cook, co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jacob is based in Beijing, where he oversees the China and broader APAC operations for WPIC. Jacob recently returned to China after a summer trip to Canada, so we thought it would be a great time to bring him back on the show to share what he's seeing on the ground in China and APAC's e-commerce landscape. After sharing his thoughts on China's domestic and international travel sector, Jacob dives into the narrative around wheat consumption in China. Jacob refutes this narrative, emphasizing that there is robust growth in several consumer sectors. We also discuss Alibaba's performance and leadership shuffle, as well as the latest Li Jiaqi scandal, before turning to a discussion of the e-commerce markets in South Korea and Southeast Asia. Enjoy. His departure did come as a surprise. I think when the original leadership was announced, we didn't see Zhang's move to cloud as really a demotion like everyone else did since the $11 billion business is one of Alibaba's most important. It's doing groundbreaking work in AI. And it's also, you know, where we see a lot of the growth coming in the future. Investors obviously when that news hit, didn't like the surprise leadership change. Eddie Wu is more of a qualified to serve as the acting chairman and CEO of the, of the cloud business, though, you know, due to his background. A new management team, I think, still be appointed. But our understanding is today's news doesn't really impact the spinoff plan for the IPO or the timeline related to that. So I think that overall is, is still on track. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your summer travel. I know you went back to Canada for a while and then traveled back to China. So tell us a little bit about your trip and how does it feel to be back on the ground in China? Yeah, it feels great. Uh, I did take an extended trip, uh, yeah, to worked out of our Vancouver office for most of the summer. Also, you know, traveled around North America uh, visiting clients. So that was great. Some of them hadn't been seen in, in several years. So it was great to reconnect. Um, you know, came back to China, uh, pretty uneventful. All COVID restrictions, of course, have been lifted, uh, including that last little test requirement. So straightforward back to 2019 levels. Um, yeah, and, and great. So uh, it, it, it was good. And, you know, it, uh, it, we're appreciative of how easy it is definitely to, uh, to get around now because, uh, you know, we probably took that for granted for a lot of the years uh, pre-pandemic. That's a little bit about traveling internationally, and that's good to hear that everything is kind of back to status quo. What's it like inter-Asia or inter-within-China travel for you these days? Yeah, it's good. Um, you know, the flights, everything's sort of back on schedule. Um, you know, even the the major booking agencies, Fliggy and Sea Trip, have reported they're back to 2019 levels. Uh, domestic capacity is there. I'm actually even seeing some newer routes on, on a lot of the cities that I travel to, like Nanjing. Um, you know, just an example, there's an 830 flight now back to Beijing. And before, you know, the last one was at 730. So it's even better now uh, 
for a lot of routes than than what was going on in 2019. Um, so that's great. It's also good to see that demand. Um, international travel also, I mean, if you look at what trip.com is reporting to as well, they're back, you know, to exceeding the demand levels of 2019. Um, but pricing and those types of things are keeping the volume a little bit below, but certainly there's a lot of, uh, of demand for travel, um, just still bottlenecks and, and problems in getting these routes back up because of course, it's not a lot of planes and not a lot of pilots right now. So I think as those crews that, you know, come back into play, it's probably still going to be, I think we think another 12 to 18 months before sort of international travel is quote unquote back to normal. Yeah, I think and it's an interesting statistic that I've seen the amount of young Chinese that are even coming over to Canada to do their flight school. We're seeing numbers of 75, 80% of the enrollment being of Chinese nationals in some of the schools across Canada, at least. That just goes to show their need and how fast they're growing. I'm curious about planes, though, I mean, or trains. You talk about flying a lot. Do you ever take trains? And what's that like? Oh, it, it's great. I certainly do a lot, um, especially on the shorter distances. There's new train stations. So right, you know, at our office, you know, two of our largest offices in China are in Nanjing and Hangzhou. We now have stations that connect those two offices, which is great. I mean, it's about an hour and 10 minutes, you know, with with taxis. I mean, you're almost two hours now door to door between those two offices, which is great. So people are, are coming in for half days. They're, they're attending meetings in both offices. And, um, you know, we knew that was coming when we chose those locations. But now that that's up and running, that's great. Um yeah, you can't say enough about the trains here uh, in China. They're completely on time. You can show up to the station 15 minutes before they leave uh, and still make it um, a little bit longer, you know, quote unquote, in the air. But I think you make it more than make it up um, with the time that you save in the station and check in and security and all that stuff. Agreed. Agreed. Anytime going uh, from, you know, that Shanghai, Beijing trip, uh, always preferred to to take the train. Just being able to get all the way downtown versus having to, to land in the airport outside of, of Beijing made it worth it. Now, one of the narratives around China recently has been about weak consumption in 2023. Always kind of makes me chuckle because it seems like people are just looking for any reason to call out China for pretty much anything that they see down. And although consumption is obviously still huge, you see things a little differently as well. Tell us about how the e-commerce sector specifically is performing and, how, and why the opportunity is still so enormous for brands. Yeah, there's definitely economic headwinds. I don't think anybody is is really saying that there aren't, but a negative narrative, you know, has really emerged about consumption. And I think that that is just narratives lacking a little bit of nuance. You know, overall retail sales are actually growing quite a bit month over month, um, but not quite at the rate I think people expected when restrictions were lifted because there hasn't been that consumer stimulus that was so prevalent in the U.S. and Canada, other parts of North, other parts of the Western world. Um, but, you know, if we look at... Um, if we take those expectations away and we look at sort of a sector by sector analysis, apparel, accessories, beauty, uh, FMCG, outdoor, pet, uh, packaged food, we're seeing very rapid growth in those categories. Um, you know, even in August, actually, vehicle consumption actually returned to growth, too, which is also, you know, showing um, which is also positive, you know, overall, you know, e-commerce is performing really well. Again, um, you know, one report, I think, showed that online sales in, in H1 are actually up 13 percent year over year. And that's with, you know, all the retail opening up in that time, too. That's about where we think. It is too. I think anywhere between 11 and 13% is what we're seeing in terms of the data that we have access to. So seeing some of these reports, you know, around 13, pretty much in line with, with the data that we have. I think global data was projecting too, I think in 2023, that about a 2.2 trillion US dollar uh, in e-commerce sales. And that overall is going to be up 10% from 2022. Now, I think that might actually 
beat it because we're expecting a pretty strong Q4 based on the Q3 numbers that we've seen so far. Um, and also interesting, 40% of all online global sales are now happening in China. So um, that projection, I think, in the same report had 11.6 on average uh, uh, growth rate up all the way up until 2027. So you know, when we see 618 numbers this year that came in around 111 billion, this this makes a lot of sense and it, and it really sort of fits. You know, we've had CEOs, Nike CEO, Uniqlo CFOs and so many other uh, global executives. If you start reading earnings reports that the, the China sales are actually beating expectations, um, you know, and, and that, again, matches up to what we're seeing with a 13 percent first half of the year. It seems wrong to say demand is weak with numbers like that. You know, people are spending on travel experiences and a whole lot of consumer products. So what that tells us really, you know, for consumer brands is that there's specific segments. No other market is posting the same growth numbers as China. Um, so really hard, you know, to, to, to see these reports coming out, you know, Ralph Lauren, 50%, you know, year on year, last quarter, Lululemon, 79% up in China. Uh, Nike was up 25 Uniqlo China, like we said at 40, um, you've seen similar reports from Apple and what have you. Um, and, and these reports, if you're following them, really talk about the consumer being back. Um, aggregated numbers, you know, from what we see, there is weakness specifically related to the real estate, uh, well, the real estate decline in that we don't, we see furniture way down. We see home appliances down and things that would go into a new home being down. When we remove that, we're still in double digit growth in almost every other category. So why is it that growth is so important? Why can't volume and size of market be enough. And I don't know which way you're going to go with that, but it just seems like if we're not seeing double digit growth, it's all hands off, uh, which which to me just doesn't seem to make sense. No, it really doesn't. And I think there's just been a narrative out there that people have wanted to follow where they're just looking for the bad news inside the media. It really doesn't match facts on the ground. It doesn't match the earnings reports that corporations are putting out. Um and really, I mean, I, I, I'm not in those newsrooms. I really can't explain why we just see this, you know, avalanche of, of really negative data coming from media at the same time, you know, report after report after report. I mean, I, I haven't seen actually anybody's financial earnings report come out with disappointing China numbers um, this year, except a couple of auto companies. But, um, you know, I, I think that's more due to product market fit than it certainly is if you have a rising vehicle market. Um, or electric car subsidies, for example. Um, mm -hmm. it, but it is tough, Todd. It's a good question. We don't know. Um, it certainly, again, just doesn't match what we're seeing on the ground. And, you know, another thing, just going back to the travel, as as it's been opening up, you know, I'm now seeing, you know, and I travel business, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. You know, I'm back to seeing 50% of business class being foreign executives now, um, both on trains and uh, airplanes. And that, I mean, for years, it was just me on every flight during COVID. So, they're going to see this. They're going to start seeing their numbers. Um, and I just think that narrative is going to fall apart pretty quickly. It's really not going to match what people are seeing on the ground. Yeah, I have this feeling that even just the number of expats living in China or moving to China is going to start to go way back up again. I, I mean, I thought we it was it was big for a while. And then we hit this kind of high, maybe this this 2015 high half a million foreigners you know, talked about living just in Shanghai alone. And then, you know, everything kind of dropped. COVID was a massive reason why. But uh, I do think that a lot of people are going to start heading back to China for sure. And what you said about the amount of international business uh, and business class being filled with international foreign uh, flyers being in, in country, that that's definitely in agreement with what I'm trying to say here. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, and it's going to differ city by city, but we certainly have already seen that in Beijing. I think Shanghai, just due to the damage caused by the lockdowns and especially the families with young children that were there, I think that's going to be take a little bit of time for them to come back. But yeah, we have, I think that expat community uh, in Beijing is actually larger now than it than it was um, pre-pandemic. A little outside the box here, but what cities inside China interest you beyond you know, the, the top five or what have you that everybody knows. What are some cities and, and what's going on as far as like markets and growth and purchasing consumption, all that kind of stuff, factories, foreign direct investment, even local, you know, investment going on? What cities are really interesting to you in China? Yeah, it, it, it's very different. You know, it's a really mixed bag. Um, I've, I've started to get out of sort of that normal four or five cities that I go to, too. And I've seen some really great growth. I'm actually headed to Dalian a little bit later today. Um, Hangzhou. Number one, I think that city has just been booming. You know, they've got the Asian Games coming up in a couple of weeks. But just in terms of what goes on in that city, in terms of AI research, biotech research, e-commerce research, of course, um, it's hard to get office space. You know, new constructions or new starts, construction starts in in Hangzhou are still booming. Um, And I think that whole region really sort of Zhejiang, Jiangsu, maybe a little bit more high on the higher end of manufacturing is doing really, really well. Um, I was talking to a colleague who was down in the Guangdong region as well. A little much slower to come back there. And I think you've seen some of the export numbers, um, especially for what we'd say a little bit lower down on the supply chain or the value add. Um, And it's just going to be a a cycle of, of maybe those factories are no longer competitive for some of the stuff they're making compared to what's going on in Asia, maybe Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Um, and they're just going to be retooling and moving up the value chain. So that process is going on maybe more in the deep South. Um, so yeah, I, I would expect it, it just to be uneven, but certainly what we see in the middle and the two provinces outside of Shanghai and Zhejiang and Jiangsu, absolutely boom times. Yeah. I mean, Zhejiang, huge, obviously Alibaba's kind of home uh, just outside of Shanghai as well, just the other direction of Nanjing. And you know, when they went IPO and created 10,000 millionaires and that halo effect and all the investment, and I know a ton of companies were going there, pretty amazing university over there as well. Quick shout out to Dalian. Dalian is where I spent five years of my time in China as well. So very familiar with that place. And for reference, for people who don't know the area as well as Jacob might, the Guangdong region, that's that corridor between Guangzhou and uh, and Shenzhen, right? uh, up and down the, the big kind of manufacturing corridor down there as well. So yeah, the, the PRD, they're calling it the Pearl River Delta there, right there, that region. Yes. Yeah. Another yeah, a name people might be a little bit more familiar with. Good segue um, into talking about Alibaba. I'm just going to kind of softball this one out. What is going on over at China's largest e-commerce platform? Yeah, a little bit of a surprise over the weekend uh, when Daniel Zhang stepped down um, really as head of, of the cloud division, which was the new position. Um, you know, they had just completed a leadership transition that was announced in the summer. We talked about that, I think, a couple months ago on the show, uh, where Joseph Tsai became the chairman, Eddie Wu, uh, CEO of the overall group, and Zhang was shifting over to cloud. Um, his departure did come as a surprise. I think when the original leadership was announced, we didn't see Zhang's move to cloud as really a demotion. Um, like everyone else did since the $11 billion business is one of Alibaba's most important. Uh, It's doing groundbreaking work in AI. And it's also, you know, where we see a lot of the growth coming in the future. Investors, obviously, when that news hit, didn't like the surprise leadership change. Eddie Wu is more of a qualified to serve as the acting chairman and CEO of the the cloud business, though, Um, you know, due to his background. A new management team, I think, needs to appoint still be appointed. But our understanding is today's news doesn't really impact 
um, the spinoff plan for the IPO or the timeline related to that. So I think that overall is is still on track. You know, we're still very optimistic on Alibaba overall. You know, despite economic headwinds, Chinese e-commerce sales continue to perform really well. And the regulatory pressure that Alibaba was going through over the last couple of years, you know, it, it's been lifted. So the group's most recent quarterly earnings were very strong. Your overall revenue was up 14% year on year, domestic e-commerce up 12 year on year. So they're right there, you know, with the market and, you know, new content pricing strategy has succeeded really pushing back, you know, against the low uh, cost platforms like Pinduoduo and Douyin. And really the, if you look at also the Taobao, I think that their DAUs were way up as well. So um, pretty positive, you know, it, it's a great company. It's full of very, very smart people. And it's very well run, you know, and we, you know, we've, we've benefited from that, you know, at WPIC quite a bit. For investors out there, don't sleep on Aliyun for sure. Pay attention to that. And, and Joseph, that uh, <laughs> calling you your brother's name. I wanted to ask you as somebody who tends to deep dive into earnings reports and financial statements and somebody who this is almost what you do on vacation. Uh, it's a hobby of yours. <laughs> you love this stuff and you go right into it. What could you gift some of our audience as far as what are the things that you take away from those? What are the what are the data points? What are the metrics that you key in on? What do you kind of ignore as noise that other people might pay attention to? And what do you really kind of key in on that maybe might surprise some listeners when you're kind of looking at gaining an edge in China? Yeah. So when we hear, you know, in the March consumer spending report was up 18% and the red flags were going all over, you know, major media talking about how big a disappointment was, is just really indicative of how we have to get our information here. So when I'm looking for how the economy is doing or, or, you know, should we be investing further? You know, what are the appropriate levels of investment in the market? I'm really looking at those earnings reports and I want especially to look at the companies that are going to pull out uh, China and, and more regional APAC numbers that we can get a good deep dive into. You know, audited financial results, those are excellent data points. Um, you know, some of the, even the numbers that are put out, even U.S. inflation numbers, quite frankly, when they're put out, they're basically just estimates, right, in, in, across a ton of data points. And they can be reasonably accurate, but nothing, I think, is, is better than sort of big four audited financials. And that's really what I'm looking for um, all the time to just gauge the health of the consumer. And, and we leaned in, you know, even what we were seeing in, in Q1 results, you know, Apple was the first one, I think, to come out and, and see the boom. Um, and then Nike, I think, followed was the next one. And we were just like, yeah, it, it's on. Um, and we continue to invest. We continue to expand. We continue to hire. Uh, and really now we're we're having an excellent Q3, like beyond our wildest imaginations. You know, we're, we're really the biggest problems now for a lot of um, the brands that we're managing is just get enough inventory. And, you know, we've had those problems in the past, but you know, those are the good problems, really. And somebody else who helps uh, manage all that growth is the guy whose name that I mistook you for, which is your brother, Joseph, who's also not, a it's not the first time. WPIC. So, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a family run business. And sometimes that's going to happen. My mom never she gets my name right in about the sixth try. I wanted to ask you about what you make of the latest scandal involving Lee Jiaqi. Boy, you know, we've just got through. I think he's just been on the air for about four or five months. I mean, for those who don't know, essentially, he lost his temper on air and he's a massive influencer. Like he is the guy right now. I mean, he started this massive movement. He's responsible for probably I wouldn't be surprised if it's like single digit percentage points now up to that of the overall uh, Chinese economy, certainly consumer consumption. He is. It's a massive economic mover. I think where he kind of lost his temper on air after a viewer made a comment on, uh, was it Florasis eyebrow pencils? And uh, I think he said they were expensive 
at about 79 renminbi. Um, and that's about $10. And I think his comment was, if people find that expensive, maybe they aren't working hard enough or something like that. And that really touched a nerve, you know, because he is, of course, a billionaire several times over. Um, and I think that maybe people were just thinking that he was really losing touch uh, with his consumer base. You know, quite frankly, 79 renminbi could be a lot for, for an eyebrow pencil. So, you know, he, he, uh, he's taking a lot of heat for that. It's probably not enough to get him taken off the air, but, you know, apologies are going to be issued and, and what have you. And, and we expect a course correction, but we're not expecting this to be, to be fatal. Every, at, at that viewership level where you really have millions and millions and millions of people tuning in on, uh, on every day, you know, those words are, are watched very carefully. And that show is almost entirely improvised and, and things like this, quite frankly, are, are going to happen. So, yeah, it's a scandal, but, you know, it's not as, not as big as the last one. I'll be honest. I would find $10 for an eyebrow pencil to be expensive. And yeah, yeah, for me. I, and, you know, <laughs> like, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not quite in that market, but uh, I'll take I'll take yeah. your word for it. That's 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 a lot of why I was I was saying that, too. You know, there's a new market for WPIC and we're going to jump across the pond a little bit. And I want to talk about South Korea. Just give us an overall view of the landscape there. It, yeah, it is. Um, and we're very happy. Uh, you know, we're going to be announcing. um some of the hires that we've made there too, real, real power team that we've got in Seoul. Um, yeah, staggering 120 billion in annual online uh, sales for physical goods. Uh, they stand as the fifth largest e-commerce market globally. Um, they have really one of the highest adoptions of e-commerce anywhere in the world. It's a very technically savvy country. Um, with like 97% of people, 20 to 39 um, have shopped online in the last year, um, which is total and complete. Um, you know, despite that high penetration, South Korea's e-commerce market is still rapidly growing, you know, as consumption, they turn to platforms like Copang and Naver, um, looking to really even buy a, a wider range, which is similar to, you know, the patterns that we saw uh, in China, you know, to where people are not buying cars online. E-commerce GMV, I think their growth rates are around 7.3%, um, you know, and that's a burgeoning market. And really what the solution that WPIC is, is, in our long-term strategy is to try to bring as many of these platforms uh, into the mix as possible. So we can, you know, have a real single source of inventory, um, look at advertising campaigns across the APAC region and assign dollars rapidly using some of the AI systems that we've been built for lower customer acquisition costs. Um, and, it, and really just the way that the operation is set up for WPIC, every market that we add in Asia just adds economies of scale. So, um, you know, the economics get really good, um, the more countries that we operate in, um, you know, we've been in Japan for three years. We've been in Southeast Asia uh, for a little bit more than a year and a half now. Um, and Korea uh, really was the last step in that piece. And now that Copang and Naver have really emerged as the dominant markets for years, it was really fragmented. Uh, and when you looked at the math and the economics um, of Korea, you know, having to go in two or three different platforms for an e-commerce market that was maybe more around the $85 billion market, um, it wasn't a fantastic decision if you could compare, you know, what was going on in Thailand or Japan. Um, but really now that Copang has, has really emerged, they've really started to, to I'd say, grow into their shoes. Um, service levels are great. Um, and people really now are, are concentrated either on Copang or Naver. For us, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, so things are concentrated in a way that, that it's now becoming a very profitable market um, for our brands. 
Yeah. Well, that region is certainly raising an eyebrow, but let's take our pencil and circle around Southeast Asia right now. Like Douyin in China, TikTok shop in Southeast Asia, it's a platform that's really having a ton of success in several markets, probably still the third platform, but it's it's growing rapidly. I think it's a really interesting play by TikTok to be doing this. And I'm very interested in watching with a lot of interest to see how well they perform. You were recently quoted in Jing Daily, where you described Southeast Asia as a major growth region for online retail. What's the latest in the e-commerce scene in that region? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're seeing also really good numbers out of our Lazada and Shopee stores right now, much better than we'd expected. So we're very bullish on the region as a whole. Obviously, it covers extremely different markets. We talk about Southeast Asia, we're really talking roughly about eight countries. Um, and that's everything from Singapore to Indonesia, um, where, of course, per capita income is extremely different. You could be on some of the highest you know, family income and household income in, in Singapore in the world. And then you get down to, you know, to, to sort of where you could be in the bottom third. And then you've got countries like Thailand that are, you know, right in the sort of middle class, the right, you know, sweet spot that we look at. Um, but, you know, overall, the growth is incredible. You know, e-commerce sales, I think during the pandemic, were like up 50 to 60%, which is incredible. So the rate of adoption is there. And I think that we've all noticed in, in, post pandemics, the people who started to shop online, they, 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 they quite like the experience and they've really, uh, they've really sort of kept that behavior. They're not going back, you know, to their old habits of, of, of offline anymore. I think they've realized that, you know, they can get much better pricing when they can compare products and stores and offerings. And that really sort of makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the competitive landscape in the region is very interesting. You know, the two major players are really the Alibaba owned Lazada platform and the 10 cent back Shopee platform. Um, you know, you had regional expert uh, Simon Toring on the uh, podcast this week, and he pointed out, I think the TikTok shop has seized huge market share um, in the podcast last week. So that was um, that was great, you know, especially in the beauty and fashion verticals. It's, I think, the second largest platform um, in some markets. And, that, and that's great, you know, for good for companies like ours that have really built up good Douyin and TikTok um skill sets. Um, the fact that that can become a more dominant player in that region is going to give WPIC a really huge advantage. So we're really excited about that. And that's, you know, we're looking also at, you know, TikTok and, and the rise of that growth um, really going to hit the entire world. And we get a lot of calls, you know, now about, you know, even from Europe and the States where people have understood that this is coming, well, it's there, but it, it's going to be a huge deal um, in the future. It really is, you know, a great way to shop, um, and I think we've talked about this before, not to repeat myself, but mimicking that going to the mall experience, right? That, that TikTok does really well, where maybe I'm going to go online and I don't know what I'm going to buy right now, but I want people to show me some products. And if I'm interested in something, I'm going to buy it. Whereas maybe more traditional e-commerce platforms, you know, the search, the algorithmic search based, maybe in a lot of cases, we went to that platform with a predetermined intent on what we were going to buy. So a little bit different, um, a little bit different uh, sort of experience for the user. And that's why we don't ever expect it. Even as you're seeing TikTok shops rise, it's going to be incremental growth. We don't expect them to be taking really GMV away from any of the established platforms or to inhibit that growth level. This really is kind of a new, um, a new way to shop. Um, so that if you're on TikTok and you're on Lazada, like I said, if I want to putz or, or go see a fashion influencer, TikTok's great for that. But if I want this gym, pair of Jimmy Choo's, and I know where to get them. I know the store. I'm probably still going to stick to the Shopee Lazada experience. 618 seems like years ago. We're through summer. 
Half of Europe has now come back from vacation uh, here in September. Kids are back in school and we have a flourish of activity uh, leading up through the end of the year. Why don't you break down a little bit of the calendar of events that are going to be happening in China, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia? What does the next few months as we head into the end of the year look like? Well, yeah, I, I mean, we've got major sales now. I mean, Q4 for e-commerce throughout the region is one of the strongest quarters of the year. Certainly in China, it's massive. We've got two of the largest sales here at 1111, um, which is going to start on the 31st of October uh, and then 1212 right after it. Um, you know, and then rushing into what's also turned out to be a pretty big sale on that New Year's sale now as well. So those are big. You know, we've got uh, we got super sales at Rakuten in Japan coming up in a few weeks. Um the calendar is really sort of jam packed between now and the end of the year. You know, we, we really start preparing, um, for 11, 11 and what goes on in Q4, just a couple of weeks after six eighteen. Now, you know, we talk about inventory transfers and using the data that we learned from that S class sale, um, to what we can expect in November. So, um, you know, as inventory has been tight for, for a lot of brands, we, we've tried to get as much notice out as possible. So we're expecting record setting, uh, sales numbers in Q4 of this year. And I think at that point, I think the narrative about the slowing economy and and the weak consumption is, uh, I, I just don't see that, you know, going into 2024. I, I just could, can't imagine that narrative coming out with another record setting 1111 and you having any credibility left uh, with your viewership no. at that point. No, it absolutely isn't. Uh, it's going to be the one of the most fun areas of the world to pay attention to, uh, even if you're looking for trends or new brands or checking out what new artificial intelligence uh, narratives are going to be created coming out of that region. I think it's going to be a fascinating place for growth and for sales. And I just can't wait for this kind of Q4 to kick off post COVID. Uh, it's going to be a really exciting time. So yeah, everybody needs to pay attention to that. And everybody needs to pay attention to the WPIC YouTube channel. Uh, lots and lots more content over there. You get a lot of shorts from our podcast as well. Definitely want to head over and see the WPIC YouTube channel as well. For those of you who are are watching this on YouTube, don't forget that we have the audio only version on the Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you get your podcasts, it's over there. So from me and from everybody, and thanks to Jacob Cook, co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening and or watching, and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.